Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, this sermon is entitled, Ten Toes for Christmas. Last night, Pastor Rob talked a bit about hands, the hands of our Savior. I'm going to talk a little bit about feet today from our Isaiah text. And we didn't even plan it that way, not at all. As we're celebrating the birth of our Lord Jesus, the Christ child, it occurred to me that already at his birth, there's really so much that you could say about him. I mean, you got the visitation of the angel Gabriel way back at his conception. Then what about all the other angels appearing to the shepherds with a birth announcement that beat anything you could pay for online at Shutterfly? There are also all the prophecies of old, like Isaiah's, written about baby Jesus far, far ahead of time. And don't forget Jesus being introduced to his cousin John the Baptist in utero. Needless to say, all that is not usually the case with most babies. Granted, this is no ordinary baby. But usually, as excited as we are about the newborn in our lives, we can nevertheless muster only a few things to say about the new arrival. Well, she's 19 inches long, or he weighs in at a half hefty 8 pounds 3 ounces, or... Did I mention that he's got all ten fingers and all ten toes? Okay, now we're getting somewhere. I feel like I know him already. Do you think Mary counted her baby's digits? She probably did. She probably counted and caressed and cradled the whole itty-bitty body of that precious baby boy of hers. No doubt, everything about that child she adored and thought beautiful. Even the ten tiny toes on his little feet, because everybody knows baby toes are indeed quite cute, aren't they? You could just gobble them up and kiss each individual tiny toe one by one. They're so fresh, and they are beautiful. But now, fast forward 10 years. Those feet aren't so fresh anymore, are they? If you've ever had a 10-year-old boy, fresh is probably the last word you'd use to describe his feet. And you're not likely to further describe them as beautiful either, even as a parent. But that, uh, nevertheless, is the exact description. Beautiful. That Isaiah gives the feet of him who brings good news. And he's not talking about baby's feet there in verse 1 of our Old Testament passage this morning. He's not even talking about the youthful feet of 10-year-olds. No. There Isaiah is referring to the full-grown feet of a messenger who just wore out said feet in a long journey back from the battlefield with a report on how goes the battle. And let me tell you, adult feet, especially back in that day, covered only partially by some thin leather straps, feet that traveled not over city sidewalks, hosed off sidewalks dressed in holiday style, but feet that traveled over fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains. These feet were not what you would want to call beautiful feet to the eye, or for that matter, to any other of the God-given senses. This is why, of course, there was the common foot-washing custom in every Middle Eastern home before dining together. 
It was especially important to have clean feet, considering that when they ate, everybody reclined at table on the floor together. Feet everywhere. Feet everywhere, and you can wash them all you want before mealtime, but that doesn't clean up the calluses, the bunions, crooked toes, and cracked toenails. I told you I was going to talk about feet today. So you still would not be tempted to call the seasoned feet beautiful even after a good foot washing. What gives then in this famous Isaiah verse today a passage that bears repeating by St. Paul to the Romans of the New Testament era? Yes, that's right. In Romans 10, 15, Paul asked the rhetorical question, how can anyone preach unless he is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Well, it is written right here in our Christmas text from Isaiah. Paul likens this bringing action to the preaching of the gospel. The gospel, that is, good news. Now, we know what gospel St. Paul preached, but what did it mean for God's people in Isaiah's day to hear good news? Surely they did not envision a first century missionary, St. Paul, bringing a Christian message to Rome, a city that didn't even exist yet. While the Holy Spirit could certainly see all that that far ahead, Isaiah's original message, given some 700 years before St. Paul, was referring in his day more to the message than to the messenger. When the prophet says, how beautiful are the feet. In other words, the feet are beautiful only because the message they deliver was one that was so yearned for. So there is this halo effect, if you will. In ancient times, which some of our youth feel is any time before cell phones, news of the outcome of a battle will be carried on foot by a messenger from the battlefield. That field was often located over the next mountain ridge if it was at all possible to keep the military maneuvers a safe distance from town. The message relayed would either be good news or bad news to those watching and praying for a report to come in. In Isaiah's case, the glorious message of this runner involved the announcement of the return from exile in Babylon. This message comes back to the fallen Judeans who were pining away in Zion. In verse 7, we get the message. Here it is. Our God reigns. What? The watchman repeats the sounding joy. Our God reigns. What a comforting word of relief Isaiah prophesies here. These abandoned souls dwelling among the ruins of Zion, that is Jerusalem, were separated from their families for generations. Think about that. This Christmas, it may be a bit harder for some of us here because our loved ones are not able to come home this time for the holidays. Maybe our son or daughter is in the military or maybe family members have just moved so far away to make the trip out this year difficult. And surely it saddens you. Perhaps for others, it's that greater, insurmountable divide 
the divide of death that separates you from your loved ones. This was a tragedy that Judah also experienced multiple times over after being conquered and carried off by King Nebuchadnezzar's armies. Except those families, thus separated, were never even able to hold services for their loved ones. They weren't giving any, given any opportunity for closure, knowing neither where, nor when, nor even if their own family members had already died or not. Year after year. Decade after decade, this small remnant barely scraped by in their makeshift hauntings under the shadow of their toppled temple in ransacked Jerusalem. Holiday after Jewish holiday came around with no reconciliation with loved ones who remained in exile in Babylon. Then, one day, after 70 years had transpired, an unexpected messenger shows up on the trampled gates at the trampled gates of the city and cries out, verse 9, burst forth together in singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. The Lord has redeemed Jerusalem. Oh, messenger, God sent messenger. You made it all this way with such a message. How beautiful indeed are those feet of yours. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. Martin Luther, we are told by historians, especially loved Christmas time. It's said by some that at Christmas time, Luther was at his theological and pastoral best. As Pastor mentioned, the sermon uh, hymn today that we just sang, and we'll continue to sing the second part of it after the sermon, that hymn was written by Martin Luther for his five-year-old son, Hans. The hymn's all about a blessed messenger, too. This one that traverses an even greater distance to bring his message. From heaven above to earth I come, announces this Christmas angel. And this interdimensional traveler comes all this way to bear good news of an even greater redemption than that of Judah's redemption from Babylon. Pointing to the manger, this heavenly messenger declares, this is the Christ, our God most high, who hears your sad and bitter cry. He will himself your savior be from all your sins to set you free. Now you talk about your halo effect. This angel's message has it. Our God most high, whom John in our Christmas gospel calls the Word, who was with God, the Word who is God. He has now become flesh and begun his dwelling among us. Whereas Isaiah's prophecy foretells the Messiah in verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. At the birth of the Christ child, the Lord thereby bared more than just his holy arm. He has taken on our human flesh and bared both arms, both legs, both hands and feet and everything else 
beholding him wrapped in swaddling clothes. We now ourselves can break forth singing, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Christ's advent here cannot help but have a major game-changing halo effect. His dwelling in our midst has redemptive repercussions. Jesus will say it himself, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He wants us to know that. This is our God near us. This is our God with us. This is God for us to forgive us. Jesus now, as he grows from a little baby and he learns to take his first steps, he's going to tread where we have tread. Only where our feet have gone astray and have been swift to shed blood, that's Paul quoting Isaiah once again, Jesus, by contrast, will walk the straight and narrow path all the days of his life and never stray from it, either to the left or to the right. Where we willingly step into situations that we know will tempt us away from our God. Jesus, by contrast, will walk away from the devil's schemes. Even when he's offered all the kingdoms of the world, walk away. And where we avoid confronting as much pain and suffering as is in our power to avoid. Jesus marches resolutely onward to Jerusalem who stones the prophets. He ascends the rocky path to Calvary, bearing the cross on his shoulders. And before the eyes of all the nations, the Lord's holy arm is once again laid bare and all the ends of the earth witness the salvation of our God. On that cross, in our place, with his grown-up hands and feet pierced for our transgressions, he pleads, Father, forgive them. He has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's proof that the Father does forgive us and that Christ's sacrifice was valid once for all time. God raised Jesus bodily from the dead that third day, giving proof, proof to us as well that he can and will raise us up according to its promise with our glorified, glorified bodies to live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, as Luther describes it in the small catechism. Then our redemption will be complete. Now he gives us the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing the eternal life to come. What a gift. What a generous gift we have to celebrate this Christmas morning and every day. What good news to sinners' ears this message the Messiah brings. How beautiful are his obedient feet that left the majesty on high for our sake and considered equality with God not something to be grasped. Instead, he humbled himself and became literally God's great gift to the world. 
in light of Isaiah's prophecy at this Christmas, it makes a lot more sense now why a sinful woman would publicly weep at our Savior's feet and wash them with her tears and hair. Yes, even kiss Jesus' feet and anoint them with perfume. Our Lord's, Lord's message to her in Luke 7.48 is, Woman, your sins are forgiven. Her song of praise is, How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. She did the math. Now it's your turn. Ten beautiful toes add up to two beautiful feet and one beautiful Savior. Amen. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Amen.